Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, as we begin, I have to make a confession this morning. I have to make a confession. Um, I have always loved pro wrestling. Um, I feel like now I, I have always loved pro wrestling. Now, look, I sense the judgment from some of you already. Um, it's a bit of a stereotype, I know. Like, I'm from Alabama, and I like pro wrestling. But I do believe every person has one redneck tendency. I won't make you call it out right now. It might be NASCAR. It might be pro wrestling. I don't know what it is. You might like spam. I don't know what it is. All of us have one redneck tendency. Mine is that I have always liked pro wrestling. And some of you are probably thinking, me too. I'm, it was my secret that I like this. But it's funny that no one watches pro wrestling, but everybody seems to know about it, right? You know who Hulk Hogan is. You know who the Macho Man Randy said. Everybody has watched this at some point in their life. Uh, for those of you who are judging me, just get past it. We're all saved by grace. Um, my wife often says when she's asked this, that people say, oh, do your kids watch it with their dad? And she says, no, I like to shield my children from the sins of their father. And so, um, but for me, it's really nostalgic. I love her wrestling. I used to watch it with my granddad every Saturday night, 6.05 p.m. on TBS, watching WCW Saturday night. And it was Ric Flair and Sting and Lex Luger and Arn Anderson and all these guys. So I loved that. And so Genesis 32 is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible because we're dropped in the middle of a wrestling match. Uh, there's no steel cage, there's no pyro, there's no interest music. Thankfully, there's no spandex tights. Um, but there is a wrestling match occurring in Genesis 32. Uh, it's a little bit more like a Greco-Roman wrestling match like you see in college or in high school. And it is a wrestling match down on the mat because when you look at the word wrestling in the Hebrew, the root of that word is the same root word you get for, what, for a human or for a man, Adam, which means dust. It's this idea of wrestling down in the dust, in the dirt. And we see that what's happening here is Jacob is wrestling with the one big question that all of us are trying to ask is, what was I created for? Wrestling with himself, wrestling with God. And this one big question has one big problem tied to it that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, is how do I, with all of my flaws, with all of my mistakes, with all of my failures, draw near to a holy God? We see in Genesis chapter 3 that man and woman have been separated from God, because not because of a God, but because of us, because of our sinful choices, and we're trying to find our way back to him. And we're wrestling with these two questions that I know I was created to know God, I know I was created to be blessed by God, but how do I return to a God that I am at odds with? We need this blessing. And this is what the story of Genesis has been about, about God calling together a family that a Messiah would come through to bring blessing to all people. And the way that we receive blessing is that we first have to receive God's forgiveness. And so to be blessed, you're going to have to wrestle with your flaws. You're going to have to wrestle with your mistakes and your sins, and they're going to have to be dealt with. It's going to require you to get down on the floor and wrestle with these things. So this morning, I want us to look at Genesis 32 and 33 and talk about how we wrestle first with our past and ourselves and our, our present self, and then how we wrestle with God. So firstly, we see that blessing requires that you wrestle with your past. You wrestle with yourself. 
verse 32, or chapter 32, verse 1, it says that Jacob went on his way. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw that Jacob had had an interaction with his uncle Laban. They had had 20 years worth of conflict where Jacob had gone there and met Rachel and fell in love and Laban deceives him. And instead of giving him Rachel, he deceives him through seven years of work to give him his other daughter, Leah. Jacob works another seven years for Rachel, works another six years to receive the payment for the flocks that he attended. And as he does this, uh, he is now leaving. They've reconciled their conflicts with one another. He's leaving, and it says in, again in verse 1, and the angels of God met him. And the angels of God met him. Now, there's only two times in the Old Testament where that phrase, the angels of God, is used in that exact form. The first time is in Genesis chapter 28. In Genesis chapter 28, we saw where Jacob had just left the promised land, running from Esau, searching for a wife to continue the covenant blessings, and we see the angels of God descending and ascending the ladder. And then here we see as he's about to enter back into the promised land that the angels of God meet him, showing us that God is with Jacob wherever he goes. And that God is with you and I wherever we go. We see him doing this. And as he is meeting him there, it says in verse 2, Jacob saw them and he said, this is God's camp. So he called the place, name of the place Mahanaim. We see that God is with him, and as, and as he experiences God, as he sees God, something incredible happens. In verse 3, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Adam. Now, the last time that he saw Esau, Esau said, I'm going to kill you if I ever see you again. He had stolen his blessing. He had taken his future away from him, and he is ready to kill his brother. So why is it? that when he enters into the presence of God, that Jacob thinks about his brother. It's because when you experience God, your conscience gets heavy. When you see the glory of God, God begins to bring things to mind that you've done, mistakes that you've made in the past. His conscience is heavy. It's a little bit like when we come to the word of God and we experience him, it's like looking into one of those HD beauty mirrors. Anybody ever looked at one of those? They're horrible, right? I see some head shaking. You see every imperfection and every blackhead and every, every little thing about your face. Like, I didn't know my face looked like that. That's what happens when we come before God. We stand before God and we see God and we see all of our flaws and all of our imperfections. And what begins to happen is he experiences the heaviness of God's glory and God's majesty and it's a little bit like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, the holiest man of all, all of Israel, is standing before the full glory of God and feels like he is literally coming undone from the inside. When we experience God, when we see God, when God draws near to us, we get convicted. And this is why, especially if you're just starting to come to church, you might be struggling a little bit, is because what begins to happen is you begin to experience some of that. You begin to experience the heaviness of your mistakes. You begin to experience the heaviness of, of, of the things that you've done. You, you're starting to look at your heart honestly. And if you stop there, of course it's bad news. If you stop at conviction, of course it feels bad. You, you might even walk away thinking, man, all these people ever do is talk about sin. All these people ever do is talk about the mistakes that we make. Why can't we get like five steps to living a better life? But the thing is, is, it, is you're only getting half the story. The other half of the story is this. Notice, who first came to the other, God or Jacob? God did. God met Jacob in the middle of his running. 
God met Jacob knowing his past. And what this means is that he saw Jacob as he was, but he was not going to leave Jacob as he was. He saw Jacob in his sin and in his mistakes, but he was going to deal with these. And we need to realize that God wants to bless you. But if you want the blessing, you're going to have to wrestle with your past. You're going to have to wrestle with your own heart. You're going to have to see your heart for what it is. You're going to have to address your mistakes. Jacob has has been gone for 20 years, and he wants to update Esau. In verse 4, it said that he was instructing his servants, thus you shall say, uh, thus you shall say uh, to, um, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've sent to, uh, I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He, he wants to update him on what's been going on in his life, hoping he's going to be received peacefully. But we see at first glance that this does not appear to be what Esau is about. The messenger returned to Jacob in verse 6. And I do encourage you to read along, by the way, if you've got a Bible in front of you. We came, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So it doesn't appear that Esau is receiving Jacob's intentions very well. At first glance, it looks like Jacob is about to get what he deserves. The consequences of Jacob stealing the blessing and the birthright from Esau means that if we're honest, he should get justice. If we're honest, I mean, we all, if you watch Law and Order, at the end of the episode, we want to see the person go to jail. Like, we want to see justice dealt out. This is why I think there's a draw toward karma, because we want everybody to get what they deserve. But karma fails as a system, because if you look at the world, it actually doesn't give us real justice. And so we can read what Jacob does next in either a positive light or a negative light. It's possible that he really does want to change. It's possible that he really does want to make amends with his brother. We could also read it negatively that he's still scheming and just trying to get out of the consequences of what he's done. But I think it's probably some sort of a mixture. I think he wants to do right, but I also don't think he exactly knows how because we see that he enters into a couple of what I like to call safety schemes. A safety scheme is where you run when you're afraid. It's where you run when you feel anxious. And here it says in verse 7 that he was afraid and distressed. It's what you run to when you feel like you can't take it anymore. And the reason is, is when you get exposed, we run back for cover. When your heart gets exposed, we run back to the things that make us feel safe, and we're all looking to something to cover up. And Jacob has two of these safety schemes. First of all, he has a plan. Jacob is the ultimate spin doctor. Verse 7, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob, it has to be an Enneagram 3. He is a planner. He's thinking way ahead. Um, He's never improvised in his life. He splits up the family and the possessions because he knows that just like the stock market, if I diversify my stocks, I can't lose it all in one shot. So he has a plan. He's planned it all out. But the second is a payoff. If you skip forward to verse 13, Jacob has this brilliant idea that I'm just going to use my wealth to bless him in such a way that he's going to be blown away by my generosity. And we see this parade of animals that are given from Esau to Jacob, over 500 animals which would have been the the equivalent of a a fortune. And he's going to give these two, and he's thinking, I can buy my way out of Esau 
wanting to kill me. I can get out of this. And he sends them in droves. He doesn't send them all at once. He sends one wave after the other. So as Esau is ready to fight, he's imagining, well, I'm going to send one of my servants with a bunch of animals and he's, he's going to take away a little bit of the sting. And just as he remembers how mad he is, I'm going to send him some more. Uh, years ago, we, we have a friend named James. His wife, Joy, visited a, a couple months ago with, with a team from Emmanuel Church in, in Birmingham. And I love James. And James wanted to bless my wife and I and James is the, the, was the sous chef of an award-winning, a beer award-winning restaurant in Birmingham. And he wanted to bless us. And we were sitting there eating and at one dish after another. He'd bring them out one at a time. And he said it before us. And there was like this curry soup and it had some sort of weird cheese in it. It was the best thing I'd ever had in my life. I didn't know you could make curry into soup. And he kept sending us more and more and more. And every time we thought, man, it can't get any better, he'd send us another dish. That's what Jacob is trying to do for Esau. These were his schemes to get out of trouble. And so what are your safety schemes? What are the things that you do when you feel exposed that you run back to to cover up and make the guilt go away and make the shame go away? Maybe you're like Jacob and you've got a plan. Man, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, 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 and this. And I'm gonna, I'm, there's going to be no mistakes here. Maybe you kind of think of it as a, as a big balance. You're like, I've done some bad stuff. I just need to do more good stuff for a little while. So the universe kind of tips in my direction. And once I do that, everything's going to be okay. Maybe you're a people pleaser and you're like, I'm just going to appease and, and, and try to bring peace in a false way. Maybe it's, it's self-atonement that you're like, if I just can do enough right things, I, I can not feel guilty anymore. Or maybe you're using something to just dull your senses. Some of us, some of those who struggle with, uh, with, with addiction and substance abuse, often it is to dull the pain of guilt and shame and fear. And we all run to these, but the reality is, is we all know they don't work. We all know deep down none of these things work. And you do, do you know how I know that? Because Jacob doesn't believe it either. Look at verse 9. Tucked in the middle of a plan and a payoff, we see Jacob crying out to God. And this is why I want to give him some credit. I want to give Jacob some credit because I do think he's trying. He says in verse 9, O God, my father Jacob, or O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and, and to your kindred that I may do you good. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He cries out to God. He realizes that what God is trying to get him to wrestle with is a couple of things. And what God is trying to get you and I to wrestle with, number one is his unworthiness. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of your kindness. What exactly has Jacob done to deserve the kindness of God? Nothing. Every story we see about him is him about him swindling somebody else and playing a game of three-card Monty and, and stealing, going all Bernie Madoff and stealing someone's uh, retirement funds. Like, that's Jacob. What has he done to deserve the love of God? Nothing. And when we look at this, and either God is a gullible fool or God is full of steadfast love, he says, I'm, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love. Jacob is starting to understand, and if you're starting to hear this, and you, and you really you realize that you're not worthy of grace, which is the point of grace, you're beginning to understand the gospel. We're not worthy of his grace, but he loves us anyway. He extends his mercy to us anyway. So you have to realize that you're unworthy, 
But secondly, Jacob realizes he's helpless. He has no other way out. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I am helpless. I can't do enough good. I can't work my way out of this. I need your help. And when you understand the gospel, you come to God and you say, I don't deserve your grace or your mercy, but you're loving and faithful to give it to me anyway through Jesus. You're faithful to give me your son to die on the cross for my sins so that I could receive it. And there's no other way for me to receive it. So you have to wrestle with these things in in your past and in yourself. But secondly, blessing requires wrestling with God. We see as the story progresses that Jacob sends in verse, uh, uh, down in verse 22, he sends his wives and his children across the river. He finds himself alone. And immediately a man jumps in and begins to wrestle with Jacob. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't happen to me very often. I mean, I, I, getting off the orange line at Green Street, somebody just wants to throw down right there. That doesn't happen, but I think about it a lot. I don't know if anybody is like that, where I just have that moment where I'm daydreaming and I'm on the train and it's like that scene from John Wick where all these guys start showing up and they're wearing the sunglasses and the suits and I'm like, let's go. Like I'm imagining that first move I'm going to pull from the Bourne identity, you know, where Jason Bourne's sitting on the bench and he grabs the nightstick. I think about that a lot, okay? But I don't know that I'd be ready if the moment arrived. Jacob gets attacked out of nowhere by this man who we know to be God, but yet Jacob doesn't quite know that yet. And he's wrestling with this man. And went on all night. Verse 25 said, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now, we know it's God. Jacob does not. But why couldn't God prevail against Jacob? We do believe this is the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament picture of, of Jesus. It's not because he lacked the strength. It's not because Jacob somehow overpowered God. It's simply because he chose to not crush him. God chose to not destroy him in the moment. And in this moment, he reaches out and touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. And he dislocates his hip. And then it says that Jacob continued to wrestle him. The man said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let go unless you bless me. Can you imagine how much you've got to want that if you're wrestling someone with a dislocated hip? I dislocated my shoulder playing softball last summer because I'm old. And I laid out for a softball. I couldn't get up. I had to be carted off the field. I can't imagine wrestling somebody with a dislocated joint, which is the most painful thing I've ever experienced. He's holding on for dear life. And he agreed, the man agrees to bless him. And he asks him what his name is. And he says, my name is Jacob. And then the man or God gives him a new name, Israel. And then Jacob proceeds to ask what the name of the man is. And we begin to see that there is no authority here for Jacob, that asking for the name shows you have authority, that we're not equals. The man refuses to do it. And this reminds me a little bit of the story in Joshua, where Joshua is approached by the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? And the man says, not, no one's. I'm on the Lord's side. And immediately Joshua knew that he was dealing with God. And immediately in this moment, Jacob understands that he has seen the face of God and lived. That he's seen God's face. 
that God could have easily crushed him, but he didn't. He chose to meet him and to change him. And what this shows you and I is that we can wrestle with God. We can wrestle with the hard questions. We can wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus. And the Bible even tells us to count the cost of discipleship of following him and that he's not going to crush us. He doesn't crush Jacob, but he also doesn't let him slide either. You have to wrestle with God to experience blessing because you need the forgiveness that God offers. And as you see yourself and you see your need for God, you begin to realize your biggest problem isn't you. You begin to realize that your biggest problem for Jacob, it wasn't Esau. It was God. You realize that your biggest problem isn't your struggles. It isn't your failures. It isn't your mistakes. Your biggest problem is that God is holy and you are not. I am not. And we have to wrestle with these things to understand the grace of God, that yes, he is holy, yes, he is gracious, yes, he is loving, yes, he is forgiving, but he is also holy and just. Alistair Begg says that if we're going to experience the forgiveness of God, four things must happen when we, when we wrestle with him. Number one is we have to experience crippling. I felt the air suck out of the room when I said that. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But Alistair Begg says that before God blessed Jacob, he weakened Jacob. You have to be weakened to be blessed. Why does God do this to Jacob? Because Jacob enters into this wrestling match self-sufficient. I can do it all on my own. I don't need anybody else. I'm just going to follow my plan and do what I want to. And I'm going to scheme my way through life. I don't really need you, God. Because you can't be self-sufficient and receive forgiveness. Because receiving forgiveness requires humility. You're not going to want it unless you realize you need it. And until you do, until you become weak, until you limp a little bit, God's only going to be good when he gives you good. Until you learn to limp, God's only going to be good when he gives you good. And this is why Job, who'd had everything taken away from him, could say, whether you give or take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And when you get this, when you're willing to be weak, you find out that the only blessing you need comes through him. God is faithful and loving to do this. He's a friend to us. And in Proverbs 27 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. God is your friend to wound you. God is your friend to humble you. He's your friend to weaken your pride. The wounds of a friend are meant to rescue you from other places of safety. And when we're crippled, when God takes away that thing that seems like it's life or death, whether that's getting to a meeting or getting a promotion or a relationship or an ability or, or an opportunity or our health, we discover one of two things. Either A, it wasn't the end of the world that I didn't make that meeting on time. Or B, God is with us, whether, whatever the mistakes are, even if our life feels like it's changed forever. Just like Jacob at the beginning at the ladder and here entering into the promised land, God is with you. He's willing to use these things to make you depend upon him. And Jacob, we see, limped for the rest of his life. It was a constant reminder. His weakness was a reminder of God's grace. When I was in high school, uh, I, I hurt my elbow really bad playing, playing basketball as a high school junior halfway through my year and couldn't play sports for the rest of high school. 
Um, it was a fairly simple injury that took a long time to, to work through, spent over a year in physical therapy. Um, my mom actually went to like five or six different doctors who wouldn't even do the surgery because they were afraid that they couldn't get range of motion back. And so for years, it took, I could not get motion back in my arm. And to this day, I still don't have full range of motion in my right elbow. And every single time I think about it, I think about God's grace because here's what I had to do for a year and a half. Nothing. I couldn't play sports. I've loved sports since I was a little kid. I, I joked that when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. That was my life's goal. Or pro wrestler, apparently, at the beginning of the sermon. Um, that's what I wanted to do more than anything. But I couldn't. And I began to see over time, this was God actually taking things away that I cherished, whether it was sports or the desire to be a surgeon or to go to the Air Force. And then halfway through my senior year, God met me and rescued me and saved me. And every time I look at my elbow, I remember God's grace. Every time you look at that limp, you can remember God's grace. What if the wound or the limp God is giving you is his grace to you, not to harm you? So we need crippling. Next one's a little better. We need to cling. Clinging. It feels a little better at least. Hanging on and not letting go. Jacob finally sees his need. He finally sees that his greatest need is God. And the reason that some of us are not seeing how good the news of Jesus is, is that we often see Jesus as an extra, not as a necessary. We see him as something that we dabble in and we meander through. We don't thirst and hunger after righteousness. We don't want him as if it is, he's the one who saves our lives. When I was in high school, everybody had a carabiner. Now they weren't this nice. Uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, they weren't this nice. This one has like a little lock on it. But it was that little flimsy carabiner that you used as a keychain. Anybody still use one of those as a keychain? Okay. Now imagine you would never use that if you were climbing up a mountain, right? Many of us treat our relationship with God like a carabiner. If it's just a keychain, whatever, I can get a new keychain. But if it's something that's going to save your life on the mountain, this is what you want. You need to see that Jesus is not just a nice addition, but he's the very one who saves your life. We cling to God. Thirdly is confessing. If you're going to wrestle with God, you have to confess. The man asks Jacob his name. He's not just asking him for information. He's asking Jacob to tell him who he is. And Jacob's going to have to admit. He's going to have to face up to the fact that he is, because he is Jacob, he's a deceiver. He's the heel grabber. He's the blessing and the birthright stealer. And if you're going to come to God and receive the forgiveness that he offers, you're going to have to be honest about who you are. You're going to have to be honest about your past. You're going to have to confess that you are a sinner and that you're not just a person who's generally got it all together, but you're someone who needs saving. Fourthly is cleansing. God gives him a new name. He now calls him Israel. He goes from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, which means that he no longer strives against God. He strives with God. He now walks with God. And because he's received a new name, he's received a new clean identity. Now, did anything fundamentally change about Jacob? Did he just decide in that moment, I'm just going to be a better person? No, God declared him holy. He declared him clean. Did Jacob earn this? No, it was given by grace. How could Jacob wrestle with God and win? Grace. How could he see God and live? Grace. As you consider this and you're wrestling with God, the question comes down to this. What are you relying on? Yourself or Jesus? 
What are, what are you clinging to, your own schemes or Jesus? Who are you? Are you still declared a sinner before God or are you declared clean before God? And we see that you can receive God's blessing, but you first have to be forgiven. You can be saved and see God and win because God became weak for your sake. Jesus took on human flesh, lived a life we couldn't live, died on the cross, the death we deserved. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just wounded, he was crushed for you. And this leads to change. Jacob was changed. He left this wrestling match with a limp, but he left it also with a relationship with God. And he began to work out his salvation for the sake of other people. And when you're made right with God, you begin to see changes in your relationship with others. So lastly, as we wrap up, I want to talk about how we apply the blessing of forgiveness. Chapter 33, we begin to see Jacob applying the forgiveness he's received from God. And we see that the gospel has both a vertical and a horizontal effect. The gospel has an effect that we're made right with God, but it also makes us right with other people. It changes how we approach to people. It makes you want to apply to others what you have received. And this is a reason that Jesus says that if you're unable to forgive other people, you don't get what Jesus has done for you. We begin to seek and give forgiveness. And so Jacob enters into this discussion with Esau differently than he had planned. He enters in with a different confidence. If you've been made right with God, who should you fear? I'll say that one more time for those who are in the back. If you have been made right with God, who should you fear? No one. Say that with me. No one. We see this because Jacob puts himself at the front of the line. He puts himself at the front of the line and he's going to face all the consequences before him because he has nobody to fear but God. He has his family behind him lined up in a really weird way. He's not perfect. He's a mess, but Jesus meets us in our mess and makes us new, right? Amen? Amen. So he approaches with confidence, but he also approaches with humility. Look at verse 3. He himself went on before him, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came nearer to his brother. That term of seven, the number means completion or wholeness or perfection. So he's showing himself to be wholly humble before him. He later on calls Esau his Lord. He refers to himself as a servant. And as he approaches, he's, he's, something unexpected happens. Esau doesn't come ready to fight, but to forgive. Chapter 33, verse 4, we see four verbs just in rapid succession. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his face and kissed him, and they wept. The working out of forgiveness. And Jacob is shocked. Because he's expecting to get punched in the face. He's expecting to be ran through with a sword. This conversation he's rehearsed for 20 years, but yet he sees that Esau has even changed. I had a friend in high school named Brandon. We weren't really friends in high school. We were friends after high school. We wanted to kill each other. And like we, would, we were at odds all the time. We almost came to blows like every other day. We were like frenemies. Like we did not get along. And this guy, was, he just annoyed me to death. Well, I was moving back to Birmingham. We were to plant a church there. And as we're moving back, I get a Facebook message from this guy. He says, hey, man, I want to grab lunch one day. And I'm like, no, like, I don't want to see you. I'll be honest. So I was like, all right. So I, I was like, all right, we'll, we'll do it. So we go and we, we grab lunch. And the man I sat down with was not the friend I had in high school. And he just starts to confess. He said, you know, he said, I was a real jerk. I was like, yes, you were. So was I. 
And he said, but I want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. And he was a radically changed person. We often fail to forget that God is working on other people in the midst of forgiveness, just like he's working on us. We see in the verses five through eight, there's this interchange where Esau's trying to see the family that he's never met. They're, they're talking about this. He's wanting to know, why are you bringing all this blessing to seeing your face is enough? And we see that Jacob says that, he, no, I want to make this right, for I've seen your face in verse 10, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Because I've seen God's face and he's been gracious to me. You're now being gracious to me. Jacob has messed up in the past. He wants to make it right. He can't change it, but he can live obediently today by the mercies of God, which are new each morning. As the story progresses, we see that they separate. I'm sure they had a lot to talk about after 20 years of being apart, lots of lost trust. But we do see something about the nature of forgiveness and what it means for reconciliation. What the world tells us is that in order to be forgiven, you first have to reconcile. That, that reconciliation leads to forgiveness. If you do enough, if, if, if you say enough, if you prove yourself enough, then I'm going to forgive you. The problem is, is that never leads to forgiveness. It never leads to reconciliation. You forgive after all that's been done. And to be clear, I'm not talking about cheap forgiveness. I'm not talking about you should just, you know, just trust anybody who, who, who hurts you. But forgiveness is a choice to absorb the offense that, to open the door for reconciliation. And the reason that we can forgive other people and really truly seek reconciliation is that Jesus absorbed that debt. Because Jesus absorbed that debt and reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other, we can forgive and then be reconciled. My, I've talked about my dad a lot and some of the stuff that's gone on and went on in, our, in our, uh, his lifetime and the ways that we've seen forgiveness change our lives. And, you know, I, when I first forgave my father, I realized that it was more about me than it was about him. I realized that I needed to forgive him. And I found myself to be incredibly angry. I found myself to, 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 that I just couldn't wrestle with this. I couldn't reconcile with him until I forgave him. That I could never be right until I chose to forgive. And we see this in the gospel, that you weren't reconciled to God until you were forgiven. You weren't right with God until you received the forgiveness that Jesus offers. That Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so what that means is this morning, if you've not done that, if you've not received the forgiveness of Jesus by trusting him alone, that's the call for you this morning. To trust that Jesus took away your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. And as you see that Jesus forgives you, you can begin, begin to forgive other people because he absorbed the debt for you. So just quick application as we close. Who do you need to forgive? Is there somebody that God is bringing to mind this morning that you need to forgive? Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness from? And then lastly, have you wrestled with God and trusted Jesus to forgive your sins? Let's pray.